This is Anders Ericsson, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. You can sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkuscom slash 721 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkuscom slash 721 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Today's episode features Anders Ericsson. This is a special treat for me. I hope you'll indulge me. I have been a huge fan of Anders' work since, admittedly, it was pointed out to me by Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers. I went back and I read uh, a lot of his original articles, and actually I got the sense that there was a lot that Gladwell got wrong. Um, Anders, I think, did as well. There's sort of this 10,000-hour rule idea has sort of been an oversimplification of Anders' work, which is an incredible body of work on the nature of expertise and how deliberate practice creates outstanding performers. So I was excited to see that Anders had a, a book coming out called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise, which is his attempt to summarize his body of work into a practitioner-friendly book. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. So, of course, I naturally made sure to get Anders on the the show for, for you and for this conversation, but also because I was hugely interested in it. So uh, our interview features a bunch of different things, including what is the oversimplification? What is the truth about the 10,000 hour rule? How does deliberate practice actually increase expertise? And how can we get started You know, if we're not trying to be a golfer or trying to be a, a, a first chair violinist, if we're just trying to become a top performer in our everyday normal work lives, or as leaders, we're trying to improve the performance of our team, how can we use the lessons of deliberate practice to increase our expertise and our performance. It's a fantastic interview. We also took a lot of the insights from the interview and I boiled them down into a six principles of deliberate practice. So if you wanna get the summation of, here's what deliberate practice is, here's how it differs from what we normally do, which Andrews would call naive practice, and how naive practice doesn't even increase our performance, but deliberate practice does. So here's how to get started on deliberate practice. Check that out, it's on the show notes page for this episode, davidberkus.com slash 721. I think you'll really enjoy it. And without further ado, our interview with Anders Ericsson. So who are you and what do you do? So I'm Anders Ericsson, and I am a professor of psychology at Florida State University. And, uh, I study how people become very, very good at uh, various things like being a doctor, being an athlete, chess player, musician. And I think a lot of people are listening and going, okay, okay, Andrews Erickson, I know that name. Where do I know that name from? What about, oh, the 10,000 hour rule and Malcolm Gladwell and outliers. I mean, uh, it, it's sort of, uh, it's fortunate and unfortunate that that it, to me seemed like the thing that really shined a lot of spotlight on your work. Lots of books kind of after that. The reason I say fortunate and unfortunate is you actually just had a piece in uh, Slate that I loved the title of, which is basically sort of what Malcolm Gladwell got wrong. Here's what the you really need to know about the 10,000 hour rule. Let's maybe we start there. What what did everybody get wrong before uh, you got the chance and peak the new book to set the record straight? What is everybody getting wrong about this 10,000 hour rule? 
Well, uh, some people don't realize that it was Malcolm Gladwell that actually came up with this idea of a, a 10,000 hour rule. And, and I think he kind of emphasized almost the magical aspect that, you know, when individuals have spent 10,000 hours, then they actually are kind of able to make contributions like the more outstanding individuals. And, and one example that he gave was the Beatles. Uh, now, he was citing our work, uh, but unfortunately he kind of misread it a little bit. Uh, so the group that was our top group, the group with Promise here for International Performance as violinists, uh, we found that when they were age 20, the average of that group had spent 10,000 hours basically studying alone. Uh, and he misread that as every one of them had actually you know, spent at least 10,000 hours. So somehow they passed this magical boundary. Now, we kind of agree with Gladwell here, and I think that's kind of the key point, that in order to be extremely good at something, even those individuals that those who believe in talent would argue are the most talented have spent, you know, a very large number of hours uh, actually training. Uh, the other question <clears throat> that we raised with Malcolm Gladwell was that he was kind of counting hours of practice. So he was counting the number of hours that Beatles had been playing in front of audiences in Hamburg. Now, what we're actually talking about is deliberate practice, and that's the kind of practice where you're not actually doing your job. You're actually taking time where you're focusing in on trying to improve. And in particular, when you do that under the kind of guidance of a master teacher, uh, so the teacher would be able to actually tell you what is going to be the next step here in your development. That is the kind of practice that we talk about as being essential to reach the highest level of performance. And I want to I want to dive into that because you also in in the new book Peak uh, Secrets from the New Science of Expertise I I want to dive into you you coin a new word so deliberate practice came from a lot of the the studies that we just talked about but you coin a new word of purposeful purposeful practice and distinguish kind of between the two and I want to dive into that but first I want to touch on one thing that you you did say which is kind of that you uh, agree with that there is something more to high-level performance, high-level expertise than just kind of innate talent. Now, that's obviously sort of, I think that's a myth that most people uh, wish would be true for some weird reason. Um, I'm not entirely sure why. But um, are, I also find it hugely comforting that this kind of, if it were, I don't want to say that innate talent has nothing to do with it, but like I, th I think the big thesis I've learned from reading your work and including the new book is that talent is essentially overrated or overemphasized when it compares to this practice. Even where there are natural abilities, you know, height in the NBA, et cetera, there is still a huge amount of practice that let's not overlook because it's probably the bigger explanation. I think that's correct. Now, I would say that, you know, I spent about 30 years uh, actually trying to look for evidence here that some people were simply not born with a necessary kind of innate uh, talent or the genes that uh, you would have to have to be successful. And, and although I agree here that body size, uh, height, that's not something that you can influence by training. But through the research I've been doing, the kind of things that seems to be associated here with success in various domains, uh, 
I always found that those kinds of aspects are amenable to training. Now, if training actually could explain all of the variability in these attributes, that's something that's not known. But it seems from my review that the evidence here that you really have to be looking for the question whether you have the necessary innate talent to be successful in a domain is not supported here by rigorous research. Uh, so we have yet actually to find that kind of evidence that would actually demonstrate that you would need certain types of genes to become successful in some domain. And, and that's even true in, in sports domains where they've now, for the last 15 years, collected DNA evidence looking for genes that would seem that would be related now to success in long distance running or in sprinting. Well, see, I, I think that's an interesting point. You, you talk about it right in the very beginning of the book that a lot of times what looks on the surface to be something that might be heritable or genetic uh, might not be. And you, t you talk about this concept of, of having perfect pitch and how certain languages that are tonal um, lend themselves to people who have perfect pitch, which can lead us astray into thinking there is a genetic cause. But again, it's another example of um, a sort of unintentional training that leaves you set up to better acquire this skill. Uh, that's right. And, and, and I think in order to really stimulate research, I think asking these questions, whether in fact you could explain for those individual differences, and you know, given that a lot of people start with various activities in their teenage years, you know, that leaves uh, you know, 12 years of experience that, that may in fact have made some individuals more uh, prepared for success in a given domain. Uh, but if you look at domains like music where you start so early that there really isn't much room for demonstration here of any exceptional abilities before you start training, uh, there, I guess, you know, training seems to be a sufficient account of uh, basically how successful and how skilled individuals become. Well, so, and, and this is something I think has interesting implications for um, you know, I, I teach in an undergrad university setting, you know, you, you, you as well um, teach in a university setting and, and the undergrads in most universities, around that 18 to 20, two-year-old are trying to figure out that sort of what do I do with my life? And there's probably, I have never actually taken a valuation on it, but it's probably a hundred of million, if not billion dollar industry designed to, oh, figure out what your natural strengths are or what are you in, innately talented for and make your career sort of towards that. And, and it's a weird tension because, okay, we know from this research now, from 30 years of, of research into this, that training and purposeful practice and deliberate practice can help you sort of get better at whatever you sort of choose. But at the same time, when you're asking this question, you're already kind of 20 years into your life. And so there might be those things that you have, um, I don't want to say accidentally been trained on, but in, in the case of like a, a pitch thing or or music in general, there are things that because your parents sort of took responsibility for them, you already are. So how do you, how do you weigh that balance or what advice would you give to somebody in that phase, maybe beginning career or even mid-career around how do you figure out what to do if we know it's not innate talent, but we also know that there are things that your previous decades have left you better practice for? I, I think that's a, a really interesting question. And, and when I talk to... Uh, sports coaches, especially those who are, you know, uh, working with uh, individuals who are, you know, in their late teens. Uh, one of the biggest problems that they tell me about is that 
that the individuals that they're trying to help have actually acquired a lot of really bad habits. Uh, so in order for them to actually, you know, go and become sort of at the very elite category, uh, there's a lot of work, more or less undoing the things that they have already acquired. Now, in other domains, it may well be that you've actually acquired the appropriate things, but I would argue that maybe the best general advice is to actually talk to a teacher who's actually taught individuals to become whatever you would like to aspire to achieve. And I think those teachers uh, would be able to kind of assess uh, where you're at and, and also give you a sort of a reasonable expectation here of how much time and, and, and effort you know, would be required to kind of reach the level that you would aspire to. Uh, and I think as we're hopefully now with research would help individuals identify what it is that they're currently doing and how does this now match on to kind of the fundamentals that would be the appropriate kind of structure to build on in order for you to keep improving here with the help of a teacher. Hmm. Now, so now you bring up an interesting thing around going to seek out a teacher who has taught others to do it. I think, and this is just something I'm, I'm thinking about actually for the first time now, a lot of, at least in the United States, a lot of our culture is sort of to celebrate the doers, right? So I was almost expecting your answer to be go seek out the people who have done it before. But I, I think that we sort of undercut the role of the teacher, the person who got them there, and that in reality, they're the better person to seek out and sort of learn from than the one who actually does it. And I think, I mean, to use a sports analogy, this is going to see the coaches instead of the athletes. But there's a lot of situations where it, it is probably better to seek out the teacher who might not be famous because we're a doer culture. I, I think that's true. And now, some of the best coaches, at least in music, would also be very high level of performers. Um, and, and, and I guess if you can't find a teacher uh, and you know people who've actually been able to achieve the level that you're looking for, uh, interviewing them and actually having them tell you about their path to uh, the level that they attained, you know, would be the sort of the second best. Uh, but in domains like in music, where you've been training musicians now for several hundred years, there's been sort of an accumulation here of knowledge about what kind of training would be useful if you want to speed up the way you're doing such and such, or if you wanted to increase your control when you're actually hitting uh, the keys here in a given piece. Uh, and I think basically looking for that accumulated knowledge of what is known uh, about how to improve one's performance to a given level. You know, I think that that is a real uh, kind of treasure of, of information that anybody who is motivated to become very good uh, should definitely uh, sort of draw on. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, and you, you actually bring up a, a good segue into uh, the role of practice. So um, those who, who really dug into your research are definitely familiar with this sort of term deliberate practice, but you actually kind of separate out different types of practice in the book. And this was the first time I'd heard of kind of a middle ground, right? There's naive practice, which is just doing it, which is what a lot of us confuse the 10,000 hour rule with. And then you, you, you talk about purposeful practice. What is purposeful practice and how does it differ from the other types of practice? So, so I guess it, 
if you like to play golf or tennis, <clears throat> it makes a lot of sense here that you would, you know, kind of engage in the game. So you go out with your friends and play and, you know, maybe you're thinking about how you're going to do things better, but essentially you're engaged here in the game. Uh, and we'd kind of distinguish that type of practice from when you're actually setting aside and now designing a practice activity that has as a goal of, for you to actually change a specific aspect. So the purpose has to do with identifying now some particular aspect and then setting up training situations so you would be able to more effectively you know, attain that uh, change. Uh, and I guess as an example, if, if you have problems on a golf course putting on sloped surfaces, you know, that may be something that you can go to the practice green and set up training activities where you, you would be doing one putt after the next. And it's clear, you know, that actually doing one putt and making adjustments is going to be so much more effective in terms of training than if you actually only have to do one putt per hole and they're going to be completely different uh, conditions under which you putt for each hole. Hmm. So I, I guess here's my kind of burning question that I, I've always wondered from a lot of this research is a lot of us don't do that type. I mean, we, we engage in golf kind of as a hobby, and of course we want to know how to get better, but a, a lot of – before Peak came out, before the book came out, the unspoken question was that a lot of it was how do I apply this to my everyday job? You know, I work in an office. I work for a big company, and I, I definitely want to know how to get better at it, but – there isn't really – there aren't coaches for it. There isn't a, um, a ranking system like in sort of chess. How do I figure out how to get better at my sort of everyday job? I think that, you know, is, is, a, is a great question. And what one of the things that I'm hoping might evolve here is kind of giving people more support, you know, so they actually would be able to, you know, have teachers that they could go to in order to improve their performance. Now, a lot of these things are probably happening very informally with, you know, some supervisors giving feedback. But I guess that idea of actually even paying individuals for investing now in training uh, with the understanding here that if the employer can actually help an individual to do a better job, that's going to be actually good investment for the employer. So providing now the kind of training where, you would be able to get feedback. You would be able to see here how individuals who are actually been able to demonstrate their success in, in sort of doing various things uh, repeatedly. So you would be able to see here what somebody else is doing. I had some contact with uh, a salesperson who was selling beds. And basically, one of the things that uh, individuals in, in their company had to do was, you know, somebody's coming in here and they need sort of a, an intro here to this new bed that, you know, basically they want them to consider. And what they did was to actually have now all the salespeople train with video. So they actually would go through and be critiqued here about their, you know, one or three minute introduction here. Uh, so basically when they came into the store, they would now have a very polished presentation that basically had been tested out. Uh, instead of doing what they used to do, namely to having salespeople do that on their own. And I and I think you know that general principle of how to kind of refine something that, especially something that you're doing 
you know, many times, uh, and how you can refine that in a way that actually makes the customer more interested in the product or more satisfied here with the interaction. Um, yeah, and I mean, I can see that even from a, a leadership or a management lesson on, you know, how often do we go in and we start to run a meeting and there's no one filming us, but there, maybe there should be filming and figuring out, you know, do you eye roll at the wrong time or does your voice uh, take on a tone that's interpreted by people to mean something differently? We don't normally set ourselves up with systems that kind of provide that feedback. But I, I guess it starts there is figuring out what are the things that we need feedback on and then how can we collect it? Because most of the time, I mean, even in a, in a company where the goals are are valid and we've got the performance feedback, et cetera, it's not happening often enough and at kind of that minute level enough to really make that performance gain. That's a, that's a great insight. Well, I, I think just starting to think about it in those terms where, you know, if you're motivated and, and you really want, you know, everyone in your team to be successful, and it seems to me that a good leader is somebody who is actually helping the team uh, to each individuals in the team to actually make you know, an even better contribution that they might uh, do under somebody else's leadership. And and I think once you kind of think through those issues and come up with ways here that you can actually measure, you know, the success here of, of the team's uh, production, uh, then I think, you know, everyone would benefit from this type of, uh, you know, kind of focused uh, analysis and training. Uh, because I think, very often, you need to start with some way here of measuring the outcome, because if, if you give up on the fact that you can actually identify a more successful team and compare it to somebody else, then obviously it's going to be very hard here to prove here that the training actually have generated a more successful team and a more productive team. Oh, that's a great point. Really good point. So the, the book, again, is Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. The author who we're talking to is Anders Ericsson. You may know him from uh, a variety of people writing about his work. Or if you're like me and you tend to nerd out on social science, you know him from reading his own um, studies. But here it is finally in kind of compiled in, in one book, which is awesome. I wonder, though, if we could switch from the book to the to the author and ask you our five questions we ask for all of our guests. The first question What's the best advice you've ever received? That's a, a great uh, yet difficult question. And uh, my sense is that, um, or at least one of the pieces of best advice that I've ever got was from uh, a professor. I worked as a postdoc in the United States. And, and he kind of told me that one of my problems was that I basically argued with people. So if they gave me, uh, you know, uh, said, you know, I was doing a great job, I guess I was brought up in Sweden with this idea here that, you know, you should basically, you know, kind of argue with people who are giving you uh, good feedback. And, and he just told me, you know, if you keep doing this, nobody is going to tell you good things. Uh, and then he also uh, told me that it was really important to try to become the best in the world at something. It may be something very, very minute, but one way of actually kind of developing expertise is try to find a small enough area where you can truly master something. Uh, and he basically said that if I could basically become knowledgeable about 
about something that when people were talking about me, they could actually, you know, use one sentence and say, you know, Anders Ericsson, he is an expert here on protocol analysis and studying people who are thinking out loud. Uh, so that was actually one of the ways that I started was to try to become an expert on that area. And then as time went on, I guess I tried to increase the number of areas that at least I thought that I was trying to become a, a, an expert in. Hmm. And, and now, I, I mean, I would say Anders Ericsson, he's the expert on expertise itself. So you're, you're obviously heeding that advice. Um, and I know that, that right now we're in sort of launch mode for the book. And the answer to this probably this question probably is there is none. But before this book kind of launched, what did an average day look like for you? Well, my ideal day is basically waking up, uh, having some breakfast, and then uh, I would spend you know two or three hours uh, either thinking or writing on the various projects that uh, are really high priority. And I find, and that was one of the insights that I think I made in, as part of the research we were doing, seeing that very successful people seem to have a very kind of habitual mode of working where they uh, did the hardest things, and, and often that is involves writing or uh, planning new research projects. And they were doing that in the morning, and, and that they also had the sense here that there was only so many hours that you could do without getting kind of totally exhausted. So if you, like I would have, responsibilities, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, teaching students and having uh, meetings and other things during the rest of the day, about two or three hours is about as much as I can kind of be able to focus in here on my writing uh, and still have kind of a, a sense here that I would be able to do a good job here with the less effortful activities of, of, of teaching and, and, and interacting with people. Hmm. What are you reading right now? Well, uh, actually, I'm sort of reading some of the books here that have come out, and I think uh, Deep Work uh, by uh, Cal uh, Newport uh, is, is one of the books, and, and I also actually had a chance here to interact with him. And, and I find it very interesting here that we're kind of converging on some similar ideas here about how one might be able to kind of help uh, professionals uh, basically do a sort of a better and maybe even more satisfying job uh, when they are at work. Yeah, I know Cal actually just reopened up his course Top Performer, which is based on this sort of deliberate practice idea. How do you figure out what is the deliberate practice for your uh, job, which is kind of fascinating. And and I definitely know from reading his work that he is uh, a big fan of your work. So it's, it's kind of cool. I, I bet if I got him on, he would say he's reading Peak. So that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> um, fourth question, what do you believe that most people don't? I, I think especially when I started this research, uh, I think I was brought up in a family here where I was assured that if I was willing to do what it took, and that would involve, you know, basically doing the training and finding teachers, that I would be able to do pretty much anything. Um, and I guess I've met a lot of people who are convinced that they can't uh, do a lot of things. Um, and, and I think 
a lot of the work that I've been doing has been trying to find sort of a roadmap, uh, which I think makes it a little bit easier to believe that you can actually achieve these higher levels where you actually have a step-by-step description about what other people have done in order to reach these higher levels of performance. Hmm. So the final question, the name of the show is Radio Free Leader. In, in your view, what makes someone a leader? I believe that a good leader is somebody who is able to get all the team members to perform at their highest level. And I think that basically by defining the leader in terms of how well uh, their team is performing and how well the team members are willing and inspired to improve their performance as a sort of a process, uh, that would be the kind of leader that I would like to, you know, uh, have lead me. Hmm. So the the book again is Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. The uh, the graduate student in me reading uh, journal articles from from Andrews has been super excited for the past thirty minutes. It's been awesome. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I definitely want to encourage our readers to check out the book, but I definitely want to say, Anders, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Uh, it was just a real pleasure. Thank you so much.